Writing for me. Connections. Some relationships, connections throughout a lifetime, may remain strong, growing branches as the roots grow deeper, whilst others reach a point of growth and possibly remain frozen in time. Still others simply wither on the vine or never really get going at all. The relationships we build with our families may reflect on our expectations of other relationships we attempt to build, as do the fairy stories and romances that we read and watch and in other ways assimilate in our childhood and youth. As ever, expectations often lead to disappointments, and as I have recently discovered, one does not even have to be aware of having any particular expectation in order to feel disappointment. There may be a general level of expectation operating in our lives and people and events sometimes fail to comply with our inner levels of generic expectation. In my lifetime, I have spent too many years in relationships within within which I spent a great deal of time and energy trying to get out of, extricate myself from the sticky web of daily duties and the expectations of others. I suffered mental anguish and desperation, constant knowledge of the undercurrent of danger, the ever-present knowledge that it was very dangerous indeed for me to let my partner know that I was always seeking a safe way in which to leave. One of these relationships led to a miraculous escape from murder. I had deliberately gone to work with my partner to France, far away from where he was living with me in my own house in Portugal. My thinking was that I would leave him in France and he would find someone else to latch on to. However, at the moment of telling him I was leaving, he reacted with all of his unrestrained, confused, conflicting emotions and pinned me down on a table and proceeded to murder me. On realising that within a few seconds I would be dead. My mind went to a pre-planned scenario, one which I had prepared many years ago for the time of dying. This strategy was to go as deeply and quickly into meditation in order to reach as high a state of consciousness as possible at the moment of death. I had trained myself for decades to drop into deep meditation practically instantly. This is exactly what I did. Knowing that my life was over at the hands of this person who claimed he loved me so very much that he could not bear the thought of me being away from him or with others, he would rather kill me than let me be free. I dropped into a deep theta state of peace from an agitated struggling for my life state instantly into deep peace.
I did so with my eyes open, looking directly at the instrument of death descending upon me. From my deeply peaceful reality, it all now appeared to be occurring in slow-mo time. I am held immobile, one of his hands holding my face and neck, my body pinned by his body and legs, his other arm descending, elbow first, directly at the bridge of my nose, at what was probably lightning speed. It was all over in less than one second. His report after this incident was that he was in a murderous, jealous, killing rage and then the peace radiating from my eyes literally turned his muscles to jelly and he lost all ability of movement. He was held for some unknown amount of time in an immobile state of wonder and then he literally rolled off of me. From my perspective, I had surrendered totally and without fear to my in oncoming death, fell deep in a peace and witnessed the death blow above. We become frozen a few centimetres from completion of the act. For both of us, we knew we had been players in some kind of miraculous event. He had had no intention at all of not killing me. If there were any doubts in my mind on that subject, they were all dispersed a little later in that same year, when I discovered that he was wanted by Interpol for the murder of three women in Germany. When I discovered this fact and told him that Interpol were on their way to arrest him, this was the moment of freedom for me. He left without hurting me. Instead, he quickly went from one hiding place to another, gathering up his collection of hidden hunting knives. <laughs> My blood ran cold as I watched him uncover one stashed knife after another. He then took all of my money and stole my dog. Great sadness for me. He stole my dog because he was incredibly jealous of my relationship with Papillon. And his jealous heart could not leave Papillon and I together when he had to run back out into the world. Despite the grief of losing my dog, I believe that Papillon was still looked after, as apart from being a jealousy machine, that man could be immensely kind and even thoughtful. What complex beings we are. Well, and of course the difficulties of having no money left. My overriding relief at finally having him out of my life was so intense that I still include it in my gratitude list today, 22 years further on in life. Relationships like this are, very fortunately, not the only relationships in my experience. I have had good close relationships between episodes of entangling with jealous gods. Some of the best relationships are close friendships, non-judgmental relationships with people with whom I feel comfortable just being myself.
I'm extremely grateful for those relationships in my life. Weirdly, I know that I'm not alone in claiming that some of my very closest relationships have been with dogs, cats, horses and a few birds. I can even claim close relationships over a course of 12 years with one particular swallow with lesser relationships with his two mates and all of their broods throughout those years until he finally died. I deeply miss him. We had a fascinating relationship and spent hours sitting together. He always brought all of his brood the very first day that they fledged and flew to sit on the cable I had strung low down next to my morning coffee table in the shade of my walled garden. I had touched the heads of each of these chicks every day since they hatched in their nest in my porch. I'd actually touched their eggs before they hatched. So in this way, I touched and connected with dozens, scores of swallows over the years of relationship with their father. They fly around me, and when I swim in the river next to my house, they line up, fly directly towards me, drink approximately two meters from my face, and then skim over my head. Sometimes they do a fly-through of my house, inspecting my nest, perching on lights and fan blades, etc., probably noticing the accumulated dust since my last spring clean. I have had so many deeply satisfying relationships with animals, both domestic and wild, that I include in the same category as my relationships with humans. My relationship with plants has grown over the years until it also takes its place in the same area as human relationships. With plants I have grown from seed or cuttings and cared for and nurtured for decades. I think about them when I am away. Who is to say that they are unaware of my caring thoughts? Either when I am with them and directly nurturing them with water, nutrients, cleaning their leaves, pruning, etc. Or when I am far away and having concerned thoughts for their well-being. Quantum entanglement suggests to me that once separate appearing organisms make relationships, those organisms may be forever linked over time and space. The plants may not actively care for me, but have an awareness that the being, that is me, cares for them and is able to receive the thoughts that I send them. In the same way, I have observed that humans, dogs, cats, horses and other loved beings are able to telepathically respond to the thoughts sent to them from those they are loved by and appear to love in return. So for me, connections and relationships are a wide range of experiences. The one thing I have learnt is that I must take care in allowing relationships to form, take care of myself and also take care not to take on responsibility for any body, animal, plant or object that I may not actually be prepared 
for being constantly responsible for. Relationships take time, patience, tolerance and commitment. I treasure those that I have, grieve for some that I have wished could have lasted longer and look forward to the enrichment of those to come. for me. Objects. I have come to understand that I have a colourful and complex relationship to objects, not so complex, confused or crippling as those faced by those we call hoarders, but one through which I can begin to understand the condition of hoarding. My relationship with objects is partly conjoined with my fairly constant creativity, through which I feel umbilically connected to the artworks which come into creation through me. However, I'm also attracted to beautiful objects that have been abandoned because of some flaw or breakage and are no longer esteemed by their previous owners. These broken beauties I may find in rubbish disposal places or junk and charity shops, etc. I make a bond with these flawed beauties that is a mixture of compassion, nurture and appreciation. Rather like the rescuing of an elderly dog abandoned by uncaring owners. As a consequence, my homes are filled with my own less-than-perfect artworks and the creations of others that were considered too flawed to maintain a place in their original homes. As I consider this, I realise that my homes have become museums of flawed beauty that fortunately not only I am able to appreciate. One perceptive visitor told me that I was a master of wabi-sabi. On researching the Japanese art of wabi-sabi, I learnt that it is a worldview centred on the acceptance of transience and imperfection, and that the aesthetic is sometimes described as one of appreciating beauty that is imperfect, impermanent and incomplete. Wabi may be translated as subdued, austere beauty, whilst sabi means rustic patina. Wabi-sabi is derived from the Buddhist teaching of the three marks of existence, uh, or sanboin in Sanskrit. Specifically, Impermanence, mujo, suffering, ku, and emptiness or absence of self-nature, kyo. Characteristics of wabi-sabi include asymmetry, roughness, simplicity, economy, austerity, modesty, 
intimacy and the appreciation of both natural objects and the forces of nature. Apparently, wabi-sabi is strongly related with a similar ascetic concept, mono no aware, which translates literally as the pathos of things. Also translated as an empathy towards things or a sensitivity towards ephemera and a gentle wistfulness or sadness at their passing in permanent state, including a deeper, gentle sadness about this state being the reality of life. So the perceptiveness of one lovely Polish man called Artur brought the focus, brought into focus the paradigm of my home garden decor. The Japanese words for these states of sadness and impermanence and their appreciation and honoring of this reality, I feel deep in the core of my being. So am I a proponent of the wisdom that is constantly thrown at us nowadays in the West? Throw out everything you have not used in the past six months. No, I am not. Objects hold emotional charges and memories for me. I remember who gave them to me, where I found them, when and why I made them, how long they've been a part of my life, etc. Having worked for many years with humans wrangling with the problems of dementia, I have witnessed at first hand the extreme importance of loved, revered objects. Photographs, paintings, jewellery, clothes, music, etc. They are placeholders and neural pathway activators that bring recollections of people, times and places that anchor ourselves to our past realities serving as reminders of our passage through life and respect for our impermanence, failing beauty and imperfections. My 40-year-old Loudon guitar is probably the object that I have had the longest and brought forward, revered and loved, taking care for her survival through various transitions of life, countries and homes. From the moment she came into my life, she has epitomised something that was created in perfection of sound and simplicity of form enabling function. A true candidate for the wabi-sabi paradigm. She was a hard-working guitar being played for many hours daily for many years, enabling my small family to live, eat, travel and enjoy life through the money that was given to us, partly from the uniqueness of her tone, also the wonderful playing of my man Chaz on his wonderful guitar that accompanied my own playing on Belladonna, as the Loudon guitar is called. When I bring her out of her travel-worn case 
and handle her. A stream of amazing memories are released. I shall continue to love, respect and care for Belladonna for the rest of my life. Others might see me. Do not judge others, so often quoted by so many different people in varied contextual backdrops. However, we live in a sea of judgment. Islam partly gets around this for females by the wearing of a burqa. Apart from the negative connotations of oppression and ownership of females, actually, Wearing one in public places may feel safe and reassuring as no one around you is judging your body in any way. They may be judging a burqa, but your shape is not revealed, therefore you are cushioned from the perpetual influx of the casual judgments of others. I personally would hate to wear a burqa, but I'm aware that in my choice of clothes to wear in different public arenas, I am very aware of both the possibility of casual and not so casual judgments. Of course, we are not only judged by our outer appearance, but the ways we present ourselves, our voices, accents, content of communication, listening ability, imagination, and general energy levels. Most of us are not even aware of the constant flow of judgments that we ourselves are making about those people, animals, plants, events, etc. around us. And only the more self-conscious amongst us are painfully aware of the constant judgments being made about ourselves. With the breakdown of a uniform fashion code in first world society, many more forms of dress are acceptable to the average person. So probably, so probably, only extreme dressing preferences merit focused judgment. I myself prefer to live alone, wear exactly what I feel like, or what the day's work pattern demands of me. Being privileged to live in a place where there is only a very small chance of encountering another human is much more liberating than the confining but sheltering tent of the burqa. When going among society, I have different levels of dress code and interaction. In my local village, I can wear beautiful artistic outfits as long as they are clean and not too exposing, so respecting the modes of acceptability of the immediate society I live amongst. They in turn have become more adventurous with their dress code. By accepting me into their society as a decent respectful person, they allow themselves to experiment with colourful dresses, skirts etc. Their acceptance of my Life is art, viewpoint. In turn, 
has allowed me to become more relaxed about being me. I only know two places on the planet where I feel free enough to wear the clothes I love anywhere outside of my home. The village of Nimbin in New South Wales, Australia is one such place. The other is my home village of Santa Clara Avella in southern Portugal. Everywhere else, I compromise by toning down my artistic dress code and behaviours to the atmospheric vibrations of place. Attuning to the vibration of place is an art form in itself, as is choosing clothes in which to travel from one destination to another. Throughout my life, I have had the awareness that my energy proves too much for a majority of people, or they can only take so much of me in their presence. In consequence, I have had a lifetime of damping down my inner self in order not to offend, upset or dominate others and situations. This is why I prefer to spend as much time alone as possible, as one can only learn about one's authentic self by feeling free enough to be all one is, with only our own judgment as interference. For another person to be seriously interesting to me, I must be attracted by simple things. Firstly, the brightness, clearness and directness of their eyes, their overall energy and health, balance and calmness of movement, calm reaction to stimuli, imaginative and informed conversation on wide-ranging topics that affect the health of our planet and universe. As these are the points that attract me to another person, and I am so very rarely attracted to anyone, as these traits are not easily found. I can assume that not so very many people are attracted to me and the conversations that I attempt to kickstart about the health of our planet and universe. Actually, in the last few years, these conversations have finally found a far greater percentage of humanity willing to participate at least for a short amount of time, before getting back to the humdrum reality of conversations about trivia and daily life. I do recognise that daily life conversations play a vital role in societal cohesion. It is simply that I am no good at them, or when forced to participate I feel non-authentic and strained much of the time. I also realise that many people feel pressurised by my preferred conversations on the topics of consciousness and human behaviour, driving our own and many Terran inhabitants to extinction, alongside solutions that could be adopted by us as individuals to alter the destination of this road we've been blindly driving along for so many years. However, I feel it is dodging responsibility if I refrain from channeling communications between myself and others 
into the realms of conscious behaviour changes. As the world situation we have painted ourselves into the corner of is so dire, so extreme, that I feel my time wasted. In fact, if I waste any time at all, it could be disastrous. In conclusion, I realise that to be overly concerned by what others think of me is deviating my energy and knowledge away from the work in hand, i.e. getting as many people as possible to realise that personal choice is truly important in building our future reality and that by changing the things we eat, drink, buy, use, desire, make, plant, plan, think, etc. We are operating our ability to change our future lives and those of all Terrans. How do I intend that others see me? When out among society, walking streets, chatting in cafes, playing my songs on stage, reciting poetry, writing my thoughts in books and blogs, painting pictures, caring for land by regeneration techniques, caring for plants and animals, helping others in need to the best of my ability, etc. I hope that they see me as a straightforward, authentic self that I present. But I know from experience that many people perceive others through the prism of their own intentions, thereby distorting the actions of others and attributing false motives to others based upon their own motivations. Because of this, I desire to waste as little time as possible concerning myself with the judgments of others and do my best to apply myself to the massive work that lies ahead to build a future world that is not only habitable but beautiful, wonderful, equitable and just for our grandchildren's children. Writing for me. Places. In my almost 70 years of experiencing wonderful places, I did spend almost a decade on the road. Travelling through Western Europe, Northern Africa, across the Sahara into West Africa. My appreciation of the various energies of places became quite refined the ability to flow into the various requirements of different places partly revolves around the acquirement of simple clothes that are easy to wear and fit seamlessly into a variety of societal scenarios. I favour long dresses or loose-fitting pants and tunics. As the majority of those travels were following the sun, a large floppy hat or peaked cap and a bag for carrying water became essential wear. My idea of a great place to camp or stay 
always revolves around clean water. Seas, lakes, rivers, waterfalls, mountain streams, or in the desert, close to a well or a running wadi. My preference is always somewhere to swim, or at least immerse myself in cool, clean water. But obviously in the deserts of the world, this is rarely possible. In New South Wales, Australia, I have enjoyed blissful hours immersed in gently running clear creeks with fish and snakes and birds all enjoying the peace and solitude together. When the rains come, these same creeks become raging brown torrents transporting huge tree trunks that remain in odd places, balanced upon one another or left hanging over the lips of waterfalls when the water recedes to a calmer state. Often these abandoned tree trunks become a huge impediment to the next deluge of water and the creeks are obliged to carve their way around them, creating pools, islands and beaches as they do so. I think it was my adventure-loving parents who instilled in my siblings and I a great love and appreciation for the natural world. In my own case, that love and appreciation superseded all other aspects of the world we live in. I do love to have a comfy cave for those many times of inclement weather, whether rain, snow, almighty storms, or indeed incredible heat. However, I love my caves where I create music, artworks and odd items of furniture, etc. Write poems and record contemplations such as this. My caves have always needed to be situated in a place that I love and that I can swim and walk in forests and mountains, commune or immerse myself in the natural world, creation itself surrounded by birdsong and the wild creatures of the night. I love to live with clear views of the night sky, the Milky Way in all of her glory, a nightly reminder that I am a small dot on a revolving world around a small sun at the edge of an enormous spiral galaxy that is itself an almost insignificant part of the universe that we are aware of. As such a tiny dot in the overall scheme of things, I feel almost obliged to experience the most beautiful spaces and places and appreciate them to the utmost of my ability during my all too short occupation of this incredible world. Writing for me. Rituals. Rituals and habits are easily confused and difficult to disentangle. Habits can be a positive or a negative factor in our lives, but then again, so can rituals. I love to prepare my evening eating place when eating alone, which is my usual custom. I prepare a wooden board on which is placed a bowl, a small plate and a glass of rosé wine. 
This board is placed upon the floor, upon the carpet, with my seating cushions beside it. In the winter time, this is placed in front of the open fire of my wood stove, cosy, warm and inviting. On long summer evenings, this can be outside, facing the setting sun, with the birds settling to roost. Is this a habit or a ritual? I feel it is in the remit of a ritual. It is a small ceremony to declare my working day is over and I slip into gratitude and reward mode with time for contemplation. Ritual for me is a form of allowing space for contemplation. From the first drink of the morning, taken facing the rising sun, I am lucky enough to live in a house where I can enjoy the unbroken sun's progress from dawn to sunset as we roll ever eastwards on our planet. Lunch in the shade with a good book has also become ritualised. When I was a busy mother, working, raising children, living in a croft house, trucks or boats, to maintain my need for a high level of freedom, there was not enough time or space to develop rituals, unless the daily round of necessities could be called rituals. When we were on the road as a family of four, our whole days were ritualised by necessity. Mornings eating together and making a plan for the day, ship-shaping the truck for travelling mode, driving off, keeping an eye out for any likely places to make some money. Sighting a market would have us pulling over, changing into performance clothes and making a quick chefaloo. Our name for hot chocolate laced with rum for confidence and heading into the market to find the optimum place to play our songs or perform our shows. Collect as much money as possible, buy fresh goodies from the market and head out to find the closest river, lake or sea to enjoy a long leisurely lunch. If the place was marvellous we would stay and enjoy it. If on the other hand it was simply a lunch stop, we would proceed to drive off again, maybe finding another money-making market along the way, but ultimately in search of a wonderful river, lake, beach or waterfall in which to camp up, explore and enjoy. On finding our nightly camp, we would first perform any clear-up operations that the site required, litter picking, and allowing the true beauty of a disrespected place to emerge. Then we would begin our almost ritualised individual tasks. Charlie would go in search of good dry wood. Jason would begin building our fireplace. He became so expert at this that I could have a fast, a slow, plus a stone oven on which to cook there were sufficient stones or rocks to build it. Ra would assist me to chop vegetables and cook our supper. As supper cooked, we would break out the guitars and rehearse new songs and tunes, our dog keeping us safe as he was alert to the surrounding area, whilst we were absorbed in our immediate fireside surrounds. 
As the stars were revealed as our sun disappeared for the night, the flames of the fire became central to our existence as we sang and rejoiced in living. As I write this, I realise that for me, rituals are simply ways of taking notice of life. Waking moments when the awareness that we are alive and that we live in a miracle as living miracles ourselves come to the surface of our consciousness. Lighting candles for remembrance or as a way of standing in solidarity of thought with others is an ancient ritual and serves the purpose of deliberate contemplation taking a break from habitual thought patterns to carve a space for contemplation, gratitude, thoughts of others, etc. In conclusion, I feel that having as many small rituals to carve as many small spaces in awareness as possible is a valuable aim. From morning coffee to bedtime rituals, rituals are us is a very great motto. Rediscovery The rediscovery of items treasured, clothes worn, photos taken, poems and musings written, old songs remembered, is a pastime that although unconsciously embarked upon, appears to be a fairly regular part of my life. This is probably because over a lifetime of seven decades so far, I have consistently had a multitude of interests, hobbies, work commitments and spontaneous happenings, most of which are kept rather haphazardly in various files or manuscripts, trucked along in boxes and then rearranged in some kind of storage or display as I move from place to place, home to home. Many, of course, have been lost along the way, some of which I remember with a great sense of loss. All of my photographs of a life in the Shetland Isles, along with all of the songs apart from the ones still remembered by my brain. Written on the aisles, along with those written on voyages across Europe, were all lost to me in 1986. Perhaps that great loss has implanted in me a desire to hold on to important facets of my life. They serve as physical reminders of my passage through, through time. Chances are that they will all be burned or dumped by my children after this lifetime is over and done. But I hope that they will keep at least some of the most precious items for posterity. The process of rediscovery may be instigated by the act of moving to a new place or deep cleaning or decorating or repurposing a certain room or indeed a whole home. During the process, it is inevitable that old documents, photos, paintings, CDs, treasured clothes, jewellery, etc. are unearthed 
and the memories associated with those articles are relived. Perhaps this process serves to liven up the neural pathways and stave off the spectre of dementia. It certainly seems to do me a lot of good to take sporadic trips down memory lane. I have written songs and poems since the age of 13. Actually, I believe I wrote some poems that were important to my self-awareness from a much earlier age, but began putting words to music at 13 years of age. So finding old songs and poems written on various scraps of paper and within old books is a fairly regular occurrence. I often have no conscious memory of these words and I find written in my own hand. I am, however, struck by the depth of wisdom and maturity of thought that is displayed, sometimes from a very young age. This in turn turns my thoughts to the subject of reincarnation. How we are born into this life with a level of maturity already earned from the passage of time encompassing many lives and experiences. Personally, I would prefer that my entire collection of memorabilia could remain in situ in the homes that I have built and renovated, all of which are decorated by paintings I have painted, have loved or have been gifted to me. All of the items in the houses have been gifted, created or found and all hold memories for me. Memories of people, places, events, both happy and sad. Some are now from much-loved family members that have successfully fulfilled their last lifetimes and passed on, perhaps to be born again. I would like to be reborn in the house I currently live in and have my memories stirred remembering incidents and people from this, my present life, whilst living a new life in the beauty and peace of the environment I have chosen as a sane and happy place to be. I can imagine my future self, a child, perhaps living in 2070 or 2080, when this area of southern Portugal will look quite different from how it looks today. Increasing drought and heat will change the environment quickly. But I'm hoping that the people alive today will have the forethought to prepare for this occurrence by the planting of trees and plants that are drought resistant. Although the very nature of the environment will change, I'm fairly confident that the population of the area will not grow. and Indeed, it will probably shrink thereby maintaining the kind of isolation that my soul requires for the peaceful, stress-free existence I love. I understand that making a living in this area into the future may also become more problematical, but I'm sure solutions may be found. I certainly hope so. No one likes to think of all that they have built and achieved during a lifetime can simply turn to ruin and ashes. So here I am considering some future child, a reincarnation of myself, rediscovering memories of a 
past life through the memorabilia that I leave behind. It is probably no more than a pipe dream, but a dream of remembering continuity. Perhaps if we all lived for our future selves, we would treat our planet better. Perhaps thinking of our children and our grandchildren's lives has not been enough of a catalyst to compel humanity to be respectful custodians of our planet. The creed of greed and grabbing as much as one can for oneself in this one short lifetime has had a devastating effect on our planet. It is not so very long ago that men and women planted trees for their grandchildren to sit in the shade and pluck fruits for joy and sustenance. Perhaps having the idea instilled that our grandchildren or great-grandchildren could also be ourselves in newly minted bodies may promote a new level of care and responsibility, temperance and forethought. So it is now time for me to return to my miniature tree nursery and take a look at how those already planted out into their growing positions and those still in pots in their nursery stage are faring. Who knows, one day a child may sit in the shade of their spreading branches, leaning against a solid healthy trunk, eating fruits from their bountiful branches. I like to think that that happy child may be me. Forgotten skills. Procrastination has been the main activity, or lack of one, present during contemplation of this week's subject, forgotten skills. I at first put this down to my belief that as I spent a great deal of time and attention in maintaining my skill set, I probably do not have too many forgotten skills. I acknowledge that I have skills that I no longer use, many due to a lifetime of accident proneness that has had the result of having to decide to abandon some of my activities and or skills. Within that list of abandoned skills lies horse riding, motorbike and bicycle riding, ice speed skating, gymnastic abilities like splits and tumbling, Running, except for a modicum of recovery on the running front that is developing after more than a decade of disability affecting knees and feet. I also abandon all manner of athletic abilities as a teenager, javelin, throwing, high and long jump, etc. But I do not regard these as forgotten skills. For some days I simply could not recall any genuinely forgotten skills. They were forgotten after all. Then one morning, a few days ago, whilst contemplating the empty pages awaiting to be filled by my musings on the subject of forgotten skills, sinking once again into procrastination, I noticed the large burn holes in one of my very old treasured winter dresses. 
I had recently burnt holes in it by sitting rather too close to my wood stove a few nights before. Without further thought, I gathered my sewing kit and selected various colours, firstly darning the hole as neatly as my unaccustomed fingers were able, and then fashioning a pretty violet flower with green leaves and a sunny orange centre to disguise and beautify the darn. It was not until I was putting the finishing touches to the second sunny orange centre that I realised that I was in fact utilising a very forgotten skill. A skill that had lain dormant since 1977 from a life lived in a Shetland croft house complete with long dark winter nights where I sewed and embroidered almost everything turning thick grey ex-World War II blankets into riots of colour with embroidered plants and flowers and birds, embroidering the simple shirts I had fashioned from old bedsheets alongside the thick warm hobbit coats that were also fashioned from woollen blankets that all benefited from the added splash of embroidery silks and some emblem or other. Having realised that my body and mind had tricked me into dredging up and utilising a forgotten skill, it then proceeded to open the doors of memory to other forgotten semi-skills. I call them semi-skills as I was never truly skillful in the realms of knitting, crochet or even sewing, although I truly enjoyed creating outfits for myself and others to wear during performances in street and stage until 1986, when all performance, and therefore the need for striking wacky costumes, came to an end in my life. Yesterday, I also harvested a few kilos of loquats from my tree. They have been going to waste for a few years, as it is simply impossible to eat as many as a tree so abundantly provides and all the locals have the same problem of overabundance when it comes to loquats in March. I have not made any jellies or jams since 2011 when arthritis kicked in big time, leaving my knees hot, red, swollen, immobile and incredibly painful. My doctor explained in his blunt bedside manner that my knees were simply knackered. From many years of teaching and demonstrating gymnastic moves as a gymnastic coach, I had worn away all protective cartilage and any other substance that might have protected my knees from harm. I simply had to wait until I was 65 years old before the UK medical profession would consider giving me a knee replacement surgery. Of course, in 2011, I was only 55 years young. Apart from the thought of the crippling pain and immobility I was experiencing lasting another 10 years, the thought of having artificial knees was simply jaw-droppingly unthinkable. So instead of considering the unthinkable, I withdrew and made careful notes about my normal diet. 
Having been vegetarian practically my whole life, and not eating snacks in general, I believed I had a pretty healthy diet. On review, however, I realised that every year I made dozens of kilos of jams and jellies from all of the abundant fruits around my home in southern Portugal. I was in the habit of adding at least a large spoonful of quince jelly of one sort or another. I produced quince and black fig and quince and grape as well as straight up quince. Well anyway, I was in the habit of adding at least a large spoonful of said quince jelly to my evening dinner of rice and vegetables or similar. Then of course I might have another spoonful or so to accompany some kind of dessert. Not to mention a liberal amount spread on toast in the mornings. Forced to be relentlessly honest, I was shocked at the quantity of white sugar that I was consuming daily in the disguise of yummy jellies. The upshot was that I gave away all the remaining jellies, put all of my empty jar stock away into storage and not only called a halt to all production of yummies, but also gave up bread for a whole two years. Well here I can report that my knees returned to their former yogic flexibility within a few months and after two years I resumed eating limited amounts of bread as long as it was made of rye or at least integral wheat flour. A few years later, in fact only two years ago in 2021, I began to add small amounts of jam or jelly to my diet brought from shops and certainly not daily. In short, my good doctor was wrong, wrong, wrong. My body was able to heal itself after desisting from feeding it unbalanced amounts of long-chain carbohydrates. It is well that I remember all of this today, as first thing this morning I labelled the 12 jars of loquat and lemon jelly that I concocted over the previous two days during intervals of recording one of my tunes called Born Again. I have marked several of the jars down as gifts to friends, so relieving me of the onerous task of consuming it all. The rest will provide me with ration doses of sweet treats so that I no longer have to purchase these from shops. A very handy forgotten skill, dredged up and reused after a very hard-earned lesson of just how a skill such as jam making might also result in extreme health issues. Temperance and balance always seem to be the answers to almost every question of life lessons. I would like to revisit on a very minor level my knowledge of knitting and sewing, creating clothes, but have absolutely no intention of revisiting the art of crochet. Meanwhile, my guitar playing abilities, artistic renditions, song, poem, authorship maintain my focus for not only keeping up but improving my abilities, including my discipline and the foreshortening of procrastination. 
Plants and trees also take up my time, attention and love, as do the animals that share my life. Love, care and attention, these are skills I wish never, ever, ever to forget. Writing for me. Food. Food, one of the essentials of continuation of life force, whomever or whatever you may be, and whatever the food source. Of course, all of our food originates in sun power, combined with water, oxygen, etc. So even avid carnivores are still ingesting light even though in its densest and darkest forms. Those that manage to live on light alone, combined with oxygen from the air, we call them breatharians. I prefer the name lucerians personally. I often wish that my body was refined enough to live like this, with the occasional strawberry, raspberry or grape for sheer delight. When I was a young teenager, and already a confirmed vegetarian for many years, I lived for a while solely on fruit. My reasoning was that of all the foods in the world, fruits were the only ones actually asking to be eaten. By being eaten, the seeds of the plants or trees could be dispersed and have a chance of flourishing far from their parents. At the time, I was wandering free with my guitar, eating fruits and actually taking the time and care to seek out compatible places for the seeds to have a fair chance of growing to maturity. This did and still does seem a very sane approach to life to me. Unfortunately, after several months of living in this way, although my connections to the spirit world grew much stronger, and I was receiving what I considered to be great truths about human and Terran life. My body began to fail. My hair started to fall and my skin to peel. I did not feel particularly weak, but probably had little energy. I spent my days and nights on beaches in Cornwall, writing and playing the songs that I, that appeared to be gifted to me. I call each new song that arrives through me into manifestation divine pearls. Others may choose to differ. I still receive poems and songs. In fact, all writing that I do simply flows out of me from a never depleted source of inspiration and wonder. So there I was, 16 years old, on a beach in Cornwall, watching clouds form and disperse, having subsisted on various fruits for several months. I did not even eat any of the seeds, as they were for propagation. Suddenly, I found myself in a beautiful vision. I was beholding a great area of golden wheat, with the sun pouring down like honey, to borrow lyrics from Joni Mitchell. Suddenly, I 
zoomed in to a close-up of a single stalk of wheat, heavy and glorious with pendant ripe seeds. At this point, a voice, a deep male melodious voice, spoke in my head. This wheat plant only needs one seed to replenish itself in a new season. All the rest are abundance, abundance offered by the wheat plant to all who may benefit. Startled to say the least, I emerged from the vision with the understanding that grains and cereals and all manner of seeds are offered to us as food, nutrition for our lives. My first slice of bread after many months without tasted like heaven itself. Half of a slice eaten with a tomato, the second half more leisurely with a peach. Since that day I have eaten cereals and all manner of seeds, also nuts, along with fruits and vegetables. I'm still not too clear on the ethics of vegetable eating, but I eat them. On and off through the decades I sometimes added some dairy produce to my diet, but recently decided that these products are not in tune with my conscious beliefs in how to respect our fellow Terrans. Alongside the vast improvement of health and energy that ensued from this vision, the experience of being spoken to directly, not simply through the process of automatic writing or in dream states, to which I had already become accustomed, was life-changing. Of course, I truly wished to maintain this level of contact with the unseen levels of reality but over my lifetime, I have learnt that I am only spoken to in this direct manner, either in extreme emergencies that are facing me, and usually I have no idea that these emergencies are facing me, and the warnings come so that I have been able to divert from the path that would have led to the emergency. But there have also been a few occasions where the same beautiful voice has patiently explained to me the whys and wherefores of my life. At one time, it was also explained to me why this level of contact on a more permanent basis was not probable. The voice told me that aside from requiring a large energy input from their level, being inside my head was akin to a sober person entering a loud and noisy bar room. Mm. I truly hope that the inside of my head no longer resembles a noisy bar room. I have followed a path of optimum peace, harmony and beauty for myself and my surroundings. Returning to the subject of food, which was the commencement of these unfolding memories, the food I enjoy is incredibly simple and, for me, delicious. I eat as much fruit directly from the trees, vines and plants daily as I can. Most of the year spent in southern Portugal supplies me with fruits almost every month. 
As I write this in March 2023, I have the sweet juice of three oranges to drink. I already ate their pulp from the juicing. Loquats are ripe and ripening on the tree beside me. The fig trees are just coming into leaf with the promise of many glorious figs in the early autumn. Our relationship with the foods we eat is of vital importance as it has shaped the condition of the world we live in today. And by inspecting and making conscious changes to our diets, we will shape the world of tomorrow. In short, if we truly wish a world of deserts, famines and hunger for many, and empty polluted seas, then continue to eat and overeat meat and all produce from animals. Devour the fishes of the rivers, lakes and oceans. We, in our billions, have done a great job of devouring our planetary fauna so far. Another couple of decades will surely finish the job. If, on the other hand, you truly wish a world of lush forests, abundant greenery, space for all wildlife to flourish, food forests, butterflies and bees, trees full of birds, etc., then choose wisely. Fruits, nuts, seeds, cereals as our foods to shape the future on a pain-free planet. PFP, pain-free planet, is my food choice.